The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. C. diff, spores, and more is brought to you by Clorox Healthcare, trusted solutions for your infection prevention needs. Visit us on the web at CloroxHealthcare.com. Welcome to C. diff, spores, and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome and thank you for joining us today on C. diff Sports and more global broadcasting network. We would like to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare, for making this program possible. Please visit the Clorox Healthcare website to learn more about their products, keeping environments safer. CloroxHealthcare.com forward slash C. diff radio. Today we welcome our guest, Dr. Hudson Garrett, Global Chief Clinical Officer, Pentex Medical Hoya Corporation, and Chairperson Clinical Education Committee for the C. diff Foundation. Today's episode, uh, Dr. Garrett will be discussing the patient's role in healthcare providers in preventing healthcare associated infections with an overview of medical device hygiene and infection control, the importance of antibiotic stewardship, and applications of evidence based infection control measures across the entire healthcare continuum of care. At this time, I would like to welcome our guest, Dr. Hudson Garrett. Welcome do- to the program, Dr. Garrett. Thank you very much, Nancy, for having me this afternoon. Ah, thank you for so much for joining us today. And today's episode holds uh, a valuable key points that we appreciate you sharing with our global listeners. And without any delay, Dr. Garrett, if you wouldn't mind, please explaining to our listeners uh, the risks associated with contracting a healthcare-associated infection when going in for a medical procedure such as a surgery. Sure. So I I think it really is even broader than that, Nancy. Um, We look at adverse events as events that should not happen. These are events that when we go into the hospital or really any healthcare delivery um, environment, whether it be inpatient or outpatient, things that we don't expect would really fall into that category of an adverse event. Healthcare-associated infection is is simply no different. Uh, We find that many adverse events are the results of breakdowns in communication um, between the healthcare team. And when you think about how many different types of people are involved in the delivery of our healthcare as consumers, it really, you know, helps us understand how quickly things can break down. When these breakdowns take place, we have these things called sentinel events, which are, are never events, if you will. Things like wrong site surgery, or we give the wrong blood type, or unfortunately you get a healthcare-associated infection. Um, we know that most healthcare-associated infections come from three primary sources. Um, first is really the contaminated hands of the healthcare provider and the patient. And I think that's important given our, our listener network that we focus on both. We do measure compliance with healthcare providers for hand hygiene, but we do not currently measure compliance for our patients. And we know that both really need to play that instrumental uh, role in collaboration and, and really speak up when they don't see the other wash their hands. So if I'm a patient in a bed and a healthcare provider walks in and they don't wash their hands, I need to feel safe and empowered to speak up and say, please wait 
I need you to sanitize your hands. The second most common um, cause of, uh, of healthcare-associated infections that we see are things that, like environmental surfaces that become contaminated, like a bed rail. Uh, we know that a lot of times in healthcare, we wrap blood pressure cuffs around bed rails, and those surfaces can easily become contaminated and serve as vectors and reservoirs for transmission. And last but not least is our own skin. You know, if you think about it, our skin is our most natural barrier for infection prevention. It's the largest organ that we have, and when it's intact, it's great. But in healthcare, we kind of, you know, don't like your skin intact in a way. We have to put a catheter in or make an incision, especially if you're having surgery, as you referenced. And so when that skin becomes broken down, then we have potential lapses um, in our body's immuno uh, response, if you will, to infection. So these are all things that we need to think about as far as risk. And of course, patients that have immunocompromising conditions like HIV or cancer or transplant patients are also at high risk. And so it's important to know what the risks are and then ask your healthcare provider team, how are they going to help mitigate those risks? Exactly. Thank you, Dr. Garrett. And Dr. Garrett, what should individuals do to protect themselves before having any kind of procedure? Well, I think the first is to feel safe asking questions, right? You know, you don't want to go and buy a car if you don't have all your questions answered. And healthcare should be no different. There should never be a time except in an emergency um, where you actually have a procedure that you don't have all your questions answered. Um, it's also important to know who's going to care for you. What are the types of people that will be part of your care team? What's the role of the nurse? What's the role of the physician or the uh, nurse practitioner or the physician assistant? What about environmental services? Uh, what about the nursing technician that's going to be responsible for a lot of my clinical care of the day-to-day things? These are all things that we should know, you know, so that we understand the role of the entire team and are they working together. Another provider that I think is really important to today's discussion is the pharmacist. Clinical pharmacists, um, in some ways, have been underappreciated. Um, they bring tremendous value to the healthcare delivery system, especially around things like antibiotic um, resistance patterns, but really looking at adverse events with drugs in general. Um, and I think a good clinical pharmacist is a good partner. And last but not least, I think you need to do your homework. You need to go online. You need to use reputable sources like health grades to evaluate your providers. You can really look at their ratings. And then use tools like Hospital Compare that allow us to look at essentially a comparison of the quality standards of the healthcare facilities in which we're visiting. And hospital compare is specific to hospitals, but there are also tools for long-term care, ambulatory surgery, and dialysis as well. So it does not have to be limited to the scope of an inpatient environment. But being an educated patient helps us be the safest patient. Exactly. And thanks, Dr. Garrett, because there's so much information there that an average you know, patient and individual wouldn't even think about. So we appreciate all of those key points. Um, no problem. Dr. Dr. Garrett, what if the healthcare provider prescribes antibiotics to be taken before a procedure? Well, you know, antibiotics are one of the very few drug classes that I can think of as a medical professional that it really impact everyone. They have a community-wide impact. Um, and antibiotics, I don't want people to be fearful of antibiotics, but I want them to be respectful of antibiotics. And the reason that I say that is that when we fear antibiotics, we sometimes become overly hesitant to use them when clinically indicated. We know that antibiotics are very effective when given correctly and when given medically uh, necessary. So those are very important things to think about. We also want to make sure that antibiotics are given 
you know, to the right patient. It, does this patient clearly need antibiotics clinically? Um, we see so many different viral infections out there, especially this time of year in the winter, that we're over-treating with antibiotics. <clears throat> and certainly there can be risk of secondary bacterial infections, but in the majority of especially our respiratory conditions, these are viral conditions, and so they really don't require the use of antibiotics because they won't respond. We also want to make sure we use the right drug. You know, what is that optimal antibiotic? Looking at our culture and sensitivity patterns in our facilities, especially in our hospitals, to understand what antibiotics are going to be the most effective for our patient population, and then giving it the right dose for the right duration. There's a lot of clinical science work being done to optimize antibiotic dosing. Uh, and also to reduce interactions with other medications. And so we always need to be cognizant of that as a healthcare provider team, but also as a patient that, you know, the average adult patient, I think I, I read somewhere, was on five and a half prescription medications. And so the chance of interaction is pretty high. And again, that's where that clinical pharmacist comes in. And last but not least, our role as patients is to make sure that we take these medications as they're prescribed by our prescriber and really to ask questions of our pharmacist. And so even though you may start to feel better, you know, on day three, if you have a 10-day course of antibiotics, it's important to take it as prescribed so that we can reduce those resistance patterns that we see in our communities. Right. And Dr. Garrett, what um, should patients consider before taking the course of pre-op antibiotics? As we've heard so much about uh, the risk of antibiotic resistance. Um, Well, again, they want to ask the right questions. And I think the first question we need to ask is, is this medication absolutely necessary for me to receive safe care? Sometimes the answer will be no. Sometimes the healthcare provider, especially our surgical colleagues, may prophylactically prescribe antibiotics. They may not be indicated. In some cases, they certainly are. But the average surgical patient receives some form of antibiotics during the course of their procedure. Another profession that I think we need to look at is our dental professionals. Uh, We know that about 10% of prescriptions for antibiotics in the U.S. come from dental professionals. And so working with our dentists and our oral surgeons to help them understand the current clinical guidelines for the appropriate use of antibiotics is very important. We've seen some changes and transitions with how we prophylactically give antibiotics for patients that have had uh, valve replacements or transplants. And so it's important to make sure that the primary care provider or surgeon is working closely with these other um, providers like our dental professionals. And like I said before, asking questions is simply the best way to get to the, the end. And if patients are not getting the answers they need, it's really time to shop around for a different healthcare professional. That is our core obligation as a medical professional is to take care of our patients. There's not any better gift I can think of other than spending time with the patient, answering their questions, and making sure we get them on the road to recovery and also improve their overall health. Thank you, doctor. And can you tell us a little bit about sepsis, doctor, and the risk associated with receiving medical care and contracting this potentially fatal infection? Sure. I'm so glad you asked this, Nancy, because sepsis is on the rise. It is a critical problem, Um, and it is also very closely linked to antibiotic resistance. And so we find that sepsis in general is really this body systematic way of saying, help, help, I have an infection. It's really what we used to refer to as blood poisoning, where you have this overwhelming uh, population of bacteria in the blood, and it starts to actually cause multi-organ failure. You see patients that become septic and really in a matter of hours. Um, it's also very difficult to diagnose. And so if it's not quickly diagnosed and treated, you're going to have tissue damage, you're going to have organ failures, I mentioned, up to and leading to death. And, and certainly we see that septic 
sepsis is not just afflicting certain patient populations like it used to. We've unfortunately seen, you know, children that have gotten infected cuts that were not properly treated, and now they're septic in a hospital emergency room and in an ICU on a ventilator. And so it's important to make sure that we first recognize that. Some things that you can do to prevent sepsis as a patient is, is really to make sure you take good general uh, care of yourself. Make sure you get your vaccinations, like your flu shot and your pneumonia shot as indicated. Prevent infections in the first place. If you get a cut, clean it out. Make sure you cover it. Um, if it starts to look red or have pus or drainage or discharge or you see red streaks, immediately seek medical attention. Do not wait over the weekend because we see that a lot of times sepsis moves extremely quickly. And also know what the symptoms are for sepsis. You know, things like I'm constantly cold, I have I have really pale skin or I'm sweating constantly, I'm confused or I'm disoriented, I'm short of breath or I see an elevation in my heart rate. These are all signs and symptoms that somehow can be missed by healthcare professionals because they can really resemble other clinical conditions as well. So one of the things that patients can do to help us is to provide a full history. Tell us exactly what's going on. Have you been out of the country? Did you recently cut yourself? Have you received any antibiotics? Have you had a medical procedure we need to know about? Um, we see that this is very commonly admitted, especially in our older patient population, because they just don't remember. And so getting that full history will help us not only recognize sepsis, but really get on the road to preventing it actively versus responding to it after the fact. Exactly. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Garrett. And uh, we are going to pause at this time for a commercial break. And when we return, we will continue learning more about bridging collaboration between patients and healthcare providers to reduce hospital-acquired infections. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety, as well as learn about upcoming events, teleconferences, and support sessions. To register for a session, call the CDF Foundation at 1-844-4CDF. 1-844-367-2343 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? washed your hands. Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. 
You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. diff spores and more global broadcasting network. And we welcome our listeners joining us today. It's a pleasure to reintroduce our guest, Dr. Hudson Garrett, Global Chief Clinical Officer for Pentex Medical Hoya Corporation and Chairperson of the Clinical Education Committee for the C. diff Foundation, here to discuss bridging collaboration between patients and healthcare providers to reduce hospital-acquired infections. We welcome Dr. Garrett back to the program. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Garrett. Thank you, Nancy, for having me. Oh, Thank you so much for being here, and we're going to continue um, our discussion, and if you wouldn't mind explaining to our listeners on how healthcare facilities, how can they ensure that medical devices are properly handled and reprocessed so that they do not become contaminated? Sure. So really, when you think about medical devices, we're referring to everything that's used within a healthcare delivery, things like blood pressure cuffs, stethoscopes, all the way up through the most complex surgical instruments and things like endoscopes. Really, the first thing that we need to do is make sure we have properly trained professionals. The individuals that are responsible for this process sometimes are known as sterile processing technicians um, or central service uh, sterile processing technicians. It depends on the facility, but these are highly competent individuals that really have a tremendous responsibility. You usually, unfortunately, find them in the basement where they're actually reprocessing a variety of different complex instruments. And so, as you can imagine, it really takes a lot of support from the top in the leadership levels. That executive support is helpful in, in not only defining what the resources are that are needed, but also properly ensuring that obstacles are removed. Um, you know, we, we also want to look at things like validation of instructions for use. How do we make sure that we can get towards a more comprehensive but really simplified instructions for use for reprocessing? One individual in this department might be responsible for a hundred different medical devices that they have to reprocess. Each of them has its own instructions for use. So as you can imagine, it can be very, very time-consuming, complex, and tedious. FDA, or Food and Drug Administration, is working aggressively with manufacturers to do more what we call human factors validation of instructions for use. This allows us to really look at the reliability of the process. And we also know that professional tools like certification, continuing education, and ongoing commitment to learning through maybe a professional degree will also help us raise the bar in this area and really look at reducing potential risk for contamination with medical devices. Okay. And Dr. Garrett, um, getting back to risks in acquiring infections, are there certain patients that are more likely to develop infections than others? Um, there are. You know, when you, when you think about that, patients that have um, very weakened immune systems like cancer patients, those that have received transplants or have uh, conditions like HIV or hepatitis are certainly at the highest risk. But that is not to mean that only those patients are high risk. There's other, other patient populations that are as well. Some of the very basic things that we can do are wash our hands, make sure we stay out of the hospital if we can. We know that risk exponentially goes up upon admission to a hospital. As I mentioned in the previous segment, we also want to stay up to date on our vaccines. I think that's really important, um, especially given the current controversy around this, that we recognize that scientifically vaccines are very safe and they're effective at helping us reduce potential risk. And last but not least, 
you know, especially in these patient populations that are the most vulnerable, we need to make sure we take all our medications as prescribed and also share that information between providers. What I would love to see in my lifetime is a completely integrated electronic medical record where regardless of where you go to seek care as a patient, we all see the same information and we have a system of flagging pertinent information like a drug allergy or a specific uh, medication that you might be on so that we can all see that. And, and we're really you know, a long ways away from from that true integration that we need. Exactly. And it's really important for patients to bring that information with them when they go to see a healthcare provider. Absolutely. Dr. Garrett, if I were a patient, should I be concerned with acquiring a potential infection if I'm having a procedure performed? You know, Nancy, that's a really legitimate question, and and I always tell people I don't want you to be concerned as much as I want you to be vigilant. Um, There is a risk for everything that we do in healthcare for both us as a healthcare professional, but also for the patient. Um, And so to think that you can seek medical care and not have any substantial risk is is really not a realistic viewpoint. Um, But that being said, we do take a lot of steps to reduce risk. And I think if we look at other industries like the airline industry or the automotive industry that have extremely high reliability safety programs, we can very easily adapt those and really adopt those within the healthcare facilities. And we've seen this happen with some of the very large healthcare institutions. But really being a vigilant patient really makes a big difference. Asking those questions and also having an engaged healthcare workforce is really going to be, um, to me, some of the keys for success. Okay. Are there any other um, avenues a patient can take to reduce their risks? Um, You know, I I think it really depends on the type of condition. Um, As we mentioned before, antibiotics certainly play a role. Uh, Wounds are a very big issue right now. So uh, really understanding how we are being properly cared for and what specifically is the goal of our care, I think is something that patients fail to ask a lot of times. We really need to communicate that effectively to the patient. You know, what is the end state that we're trying to achieve? Sometimes it's not exactly what the patient wants it to be, and sometimes it's a medical issue, sometimes it's not. But really being realistic, in our approach. And then, like I said, asking the right questions of the right people and not being afraid to speak up. And, and please know that it is not offensive um, to ask a healthcare provider to wash their hands or why are you giving me this medication? These are questions that we legitimately should be asking as safe uh, healthcare consumers. Exactly. And thanks so much for uh, sharing that information, Dr. Garrett. Um, Moving forward, what is the role of the clinical environment uh, of care and potential transmission? Sure. So really the clinical environment of care is a new term that has emerged in the last probably five to 10 years. And it refers to all of these environmental surfaces and medical devices that are used in the delivery of care. So everything from a blood pressure cuff to a stethoscope, uh, we've seen a lot of outbreaks, especially around HIV and hepatitis B, with things like glucometers that we use to test the blood sugar. These devices are exposed to blood, as you can imagine, because we do a finger stick, and there's a high likelihood, if it's not properly cleaned, of potential transmission. That being said, this clinical environment of care is better understood than ever. Um, It's even being resourced as such by our colleagues at the CDC to really look at what are some of those risk mitigation strategies that we can employ. Who do we need to collaborate with? And specifically, I think the most important uh, stakeholder here is our colleagues in environmental services. You know, we've really moved away from the term janitor and moved to a healthcare environmental services professional. 
these frontline staff members have a, a complex responsibility for that clinical environment of care. They are not only uh, disinfecting and cleaning the reservoirs or the, you know, the surfaces that can serve for bacterial growth, but they're also breaking down potential vectors for transmission that allow transmission to happen, like bed rails, uh, toilets, for example. We know with C. diff as a, a wonderful uh, pathogen of example here that uh, toilets are a primary vehicle for transmission. And so really looking at cleaning and disinfection practices and also monitoring our effectiveness of our process with some basic tools like bioluminescence, ATP, and visual monitoring. Okay, Dr. Garrett, who is primarily responsible for making sure the healthcare environment is both clean and sanitary? You know, this is a tricky question, Nancy, because if you ask me the same question and you say, who's responsible for infection prevention and control, most people in healthcare would immediately defer and say the infection preventionist, you know, that department that has the title on their door. And, and I, my response is always the same. No, infection prevention always res- uh, is responsible. It's, it's something that we're all responsible for, should I say. Um, it is a, a, a thing that goes across all spectrums and gamuts of healthcare, and the same is true here for the environmental services or the clinical environment of care. While environmental services plays probably the most instrumental role in maintaining the clean environment of care, we could say the same thing about our colleagues in nursing, right? Because if you think about devices, maybe I have a typical intensive care setting, and I have a patient that's on a ventilator. Um, that, that environmental services professional is most likely not going to want to clean the ventilator for fear of actually maybe changing the setting or somehow, you know, messing up the equipment. And I totally respect that. So we need to have a sit-down conversation and meeting with our colleagues in nursing and say if it's connected to the patient, the nursing uh, you know, staff will be responsible for cleaning and disinfecting it. And if it's not, the environmental services team will handle it. But having those collaborative uh, arrangements really helps us address the complexities that exist within the healthcare environment of care, but also help us move forward with potential obstacles. Maybe there's things that we can learn from each other um, and really look at the patient too. You know, if the patient's able to engage, we want to make sure that they tell us when they're not seeing things being done. They can be excellent resources for helping us monitor compliance. Exactly. It's team effort, and we understand that. Thanks, Dr. Garrett. Can you explain to us um, what evidence-based resources are available to healthcare professionals to help improve the cleanliness of the healthcare environment of care? Sure. So, you know, there are a variety of these. And I go back to a phrase that a colleague at CDC mentioned years ago that stuck in my head early in my career. And she simply said, you know, Hudson, if we were to wash our hands when we should, we would probably be able to eliminate 80% of healthcare-associated infections right off the bat. Right. So that's, that, is, that leaves us with 20% of infections to deal with. And we know that that remaining 20% come from the skin and the, and the hands um, and, and environmental surfaces and primarily environmental surfaces in the skin. So not only are there resources that are available through the CDC in the form of the environmental care guidelines as well as the disinfection and sterilization guidelines, but there's also evidence-based practice resources available from the Environmental Services Professional Association. Uh, that association is referred to as the Association for the Healthcare Environment. They're a personal membership group of the American Hospital Association, and they publish their own version of evidence-based practice, which is called the Practice Guidance for Environmental Cleaning. 
Um, I think that it also is important to note that frontline technicians that are responsible for this role need to have the proper training and resources, and that's also available through AHE in the form of their Certified Healthcare Environmental Services Technician Program, which is a frontline certification program. They also have a Certificate of Mastery Program in Infection Prevention as well. So combined with the evidence that's produced by CDC with the frontline training available from AHE, it really helps us provide for the future of clean and sanitary uh, delivery of care and maintaining that environment of care in the most pristine possible manner. Well, thank you so much for sharing this information with our listeners today, Dr. Garrett. We're going to pause for a commercial break now, and when we return, we will continue learning more about bridging collaboration between patients and healthcare providers to reduce hospital-acquired infections. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety, as well as learn about upcoming events, teleconferences, and support sessions. To register for a session, call the CDF Foundation at 1-844-4CDF. 1-844-367-2343 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? washed your hands. Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. diff, spores, and more, Global Broadcasting Network. We welcome our listeners joining us today. It's a pleasure to also reintroduce our guest, Dr. Hudson Garrett, Global Chief Clinical Officer for Pentex Medical Hoya Corporation and Chairperson of the Clinical Education Committee for the CDF Foundation, here to discuss bridging collaboration between patients and healthcare providers to reduce hospital-acquired infections. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Garrett. Thank you very much, Nancy. You're welcome, and thanks so much for being here with us. And Dr. 
Um, moving right along with our discussions today, uh, there's many key topics to discuss, but one is a term that's called medical device hygiene. Can you explain what is meant by that term? Sure. So it's really a relatively new term in response to the outbreaks associated with CRE or carbapenem-resistant organisms that we've seen with medical devices. So in the last segment, we really talked about the clinical environment of care and the tremendous role that colleagues in environmental services play. We're really building upon that. Now we need to look at the complexities of medical devices and associated reprocessing. So medical device hygiene is really looking at everything from the training of the individuals responsible for this process all the way through the physical reprocessing and storage process. We find that many instruments, whether they're surgical or things like endoscopes or bronchoscopes, can become contaminated along that pathway. And specifically, CDC has released some statements from the Healthcare Infection Control Practices Advisory Committee that help us guide these decisions. So as I mentioned before, it's really about building that role of the clinical environment of care, but also incorporating things that have the complexities like surgical instrumentation. Okay, thanks, doctor. And are there certain requirements that exist regarding reprocessing of medical devices to maintain cleanliness? Well, really, we want to look at the essential steps for reprocessing, you know, basic things like pre-cleaning to remove any of that gross bio-burden or soil that's organically present. Um, this pre-cleaning step can also help us prevent the formation of biofilm. Um, things like leak testing come next and then followed by the manual cleaning. It's also important to visually inspect these items to ensure that we don't actually see any damage. We know that in some of these outbreaks, there was damage associated with the devices that could have been prevented through good maintenance. And then we're going to finish that with our disinfection and or sterilization process. Currently, really, the gold standard that we see for environmental services is, you know, that lower intermediate level disinfection. But for instrumentation, it's really high level disinfection and potentially sterilization, dependent upon what the manufacturer's instructions for use state. And one of the things that we find as a challenge is that there's so many different pieces of equipment. You know, even thinking about beds as an example, different bed mattresses from the same manufacturer may have different approved cleaning chemicals. The same is true for surgical instruments, where we have different types of solutions that are required. And last but not least is, is really the aspect of storage. We want to make sure that devices are stored appropriately and free from contamination. You know, you don't want to see someone go touch a, a, a scope, for example, with their bare hands. Um, that certainly is not a good practice. You don't want to see someone, you know, doing a, a blood glucose test without gloves on. Um, and documentation is also going to be helpful as well. So I think when you look at the components of this comprehensive medical device hygiene strategy, you know, it really builds upon the lessons, as I said, learned from our colleagues in environmental services and takes it to a different level in the sterile processing department. Okay, in the sterile processing department, doctor, are the devices always sterilized during their, these procedures? Well, you know, the word sterile has different meanings to different people. Um, as a consumer of healthcare, I think most people assume that most medical devices are sterile, meaning they're totally free of bacteria um, and other associated microorganisms. What we have found with recent outbreaks is that sterile does not always mean sterile. Uh, sterility can certainly be compromised or broken. We can see this through storage, the distribution, transportation of products. Uh, the way that we dispense it in the clinical care environment is another example, or maybe we stuff it in a shelf and it becomes, uh, you know, the, the peel pack actually becomes punctured as an example. So we, we can't always assume that things are sterile. It's also important to note that from a patient perspective, all medical procedures are not designed to be sterile. 
Um, you know, if I'm going to suture you up, for example, and put stitches in you, I'm going to wear sterile gloves because I want to make sure that process is as sterile as possible. I'm closing that skin that is not intact. Things like endoscopes are not done under sterile conditions, and so that's why you see those reprocess at a high-level disinfection. Um, you know, common equipment like blood pressure cuffs, glucometers, these are what we refer to as non-critical items and those that do not come in contact with the mucous membrane or sterile body cavity, but rather only come in contact with intact skin. And so our environmental services team are going to disinfect and clean those with, you know, things like ready-to-use disinfectants, uh, liquid sprays, wipes, and things of those natures that are EPA registered. Okay, and doctor, getting back to responsibility, who is responsible for cleaning and disinfecting medical devices that might be used if I were a patient? You know, it depends on the type of device. If we're talking about something that is typically used on the floor in, in maybe an ICU room or in a med surge room or in the ED, typically you're going to find that that responsibility falls on an environmental services technician. And as I mentioned before, these are highly competent and skilled professionals that really understand the complexities of the clinical environment of care. Um, if we go to a different environment, maybe like the operating room, sterile processing, um, or a procedural area, you might find a technician is really responsible for certain Certain aspects of the process, like pre-cleaning or instrument cleaning, decontamination, and then it may be turfed over to another colleague in sterile processing. And so you could see a variety of different individuals with different types and levels of training responsible for the complexities associated with reprocessing of medical devices, depending upon where it's used, how it's used, and how it needs to be reprocessed. But we find that the um, probably the large largest variety of medical devices are actually reprocessed and handled on the floor. And so surgical instrumentation are actually a fairly small amount um, compared to the larger sum of things that are used in the, the regular delivery of care. Okay, doctor. And as a healthcare provider, what type of training should be acquired in medical device hygiene and reprocessing? You know, I think training is, is the most important thing that we don't do well enough in healthcare. Um, education and training on a continuous basis, we know in the literature, not just in the healthcare space, but across multiple different um, settings like manufacturing, the airline industry, that training and competency assessments can help us not only reduce risk, but also improve reliability in our process. Um, training needs to be specific to the model. You need to make sure that training addresses all aspects of the process, starting with decontamination, cleaning and sterilization, and, and really focusing on what are the intricacies of that specific device. Um, this can be accomplished through partnership with the manufacturer. It can be done through continuing education programs, professional conferences, and online learning. But really looking at staff competencies in general, it doesn't just you know, stop when you hire someone. Just training them when they come on board for the first time is simply not effective. Um, when we introduce new equipment, maybe we introduce a new stethoscope or a new piece of surgical equipment, we need to make sure that staff know what to do. What is the appropriate chemical to disinfect or clean that with? How are we going to store that information? And what does our policy and procedure say? And I think we're going to see an emphasis in more and more certified professionals, both in environmental services at the frontline level, but also these individuals that have responsibility in sterile processing. Okay, doctor, how can patients and healthcare providers collaborate together to reduce the risk of infections related to medical devices and procedures? 
Well, I think it goes back to, again, having a very trusting relationship between the patient and the healthcare provider team. Um, you know, when we look at how care is transitioned, especially inpatient care, the days of your family doctor or your internist following you in the hospital upon admission are, are pretty much gone. You know, these types of private physicians are not interested in that model anymore. And so we've seen the advent of hospitalists that are really embedded in the hospital delivery system, typically employed there as well, that are responsible for the day-to-day operation um, of, of your care. And so I, I think that that's one thing to consider is, you know, the individual taking care of you during that acute episode might not be totally familiar with all of your medical care. So as we re- um, refer to ourselves as educated patients, we need to speak up as good consumers of health care and ask the right questions. If we're not comfortable with something, we need to say that. Um, there's no reason to be afraid. Um, there's nothing more, you know, valuable than our time and our life. And so, you know, if a healthcare professional refuses or does not satisfy your needs for answering your questions, get another person, get another opinion. Um, there's also this concept of the rapid response team in healthcare. It is extremely effective. And a rapid response is simply really a very quick, immediate emergency type response to a patient's bedside to really deal with a, a complex issue, maybe a challenge or a deterioration in care. What we found is that the majority of these are not even uh, actually, I guess, initiated by healthcare staff, but we're seeing more and more of these instituted by the patient or their family, where I look at, you know, my mom in the bed and I say, mom doesn't look right, something is not right, and I hit that button and the staff comes running, and you get this multidisciplinary approach to looking at the patient and evaluating that. So, as a patient's family member, we are probably the biggest advocate for their safe delivery of care as possible, and we should also be, you know, really integrated in the delivery of care and make sure we ask those right questions. And, and again, don't be afraid to speak up. Exactly, doctor. And what should patients do if they have questions about the medical devices that are being used in their care? Um, you know, it depends on the type of device. Um, if you're talking about basic things like blood pressure cuffs and glucometers, you, you know, you want to make sure that um, the, the environmental services team is, is integrated in that process and you can ask them, you know, what are the things that you're doing to make sure this device doesn't become contaminated? And they'll be very, very quick to answer those questions. And, and really, we find that environmental services technicians spend the majority of their time in the patient's room. So they, in some cases, spend more time than clinical care providers and really build very, very... Um, great relationships with the patient because they're not there to poke them or prod them. They're there to take care of their environment. And we know that the environment also helps us improve in healing. It improves our HCAP scores, our patient satisfaction. So it's all tied in. Um, But when you look at specific medical devices, like a surgical instrument, ask the surgeon, you know, what are you doing to take care of this? And and, and most often the actual provider will not necessarily be uh, involved in that level of detail, but they can refer you to the staff member that is to your level of satisfaction. So I think we also want to make sure we understand who is responsible in the process and spend some time with this. And I used my my own surgery as an example several years ago. I was probably the only crazy patient that came in that wanted to meet the anesthesiologist. I wanted to meet the nurse. I met the environmental services technician. I met the surgeon. I mean, I met everybody that was going to be involved in the delivery of my care. And I said, if any of these people are not here that I've met, I'm canceling the surgery. Um, and, and while some may say that's a little over the top, I felt very comfortable because I had built a relationship with these people. I knew that that environmental services technician had cleaned that OR suite. I knew that the anesthesia provider knew the risk associated with my specific medical 
medical history. And these are all invaluable things to help reduce the anxiety for the patient, but also improve the overall outcome that we want for our patients as well. Exactly. And thanks so much for sharing that with everybody today, doctor. And can you tell us roles the federal government play in protecting the public from harm from the medical advices devices? Sure. So, you know, agencies like FDA have the core responsibility for medical device approval and drug approval. They also look at things like the blood supply and biologics. Um, So they play a tremendous role in ensuring that devices that come onto the market do meet the stringent standards for being able to be clean and disinfected. Um, I think about colleagues in environmental services that really struggle with pieces of equipment that are released in hospitals that have absolutely no standardized cleaning instructions. And that's just grossly unacceptable to put them in that position to lose. Um, nothing should come in the doors of a healthcare institution without validated instructions for use, specifically for cleaning and disinfection. And what we don't want to do is have to carry, you know, 25 disin- disinfectants to take care of all these pieces of equipment. So we really need better collaboration with manufacturing and the government and also a standardized approach from our colleagues at CDC. CDC really drives our scientific interpretation and release of guidelines So when I think of them, they're the ones that help put out the evidence. They help us standardize that. And then we see, you know, CMS with the stick that helps us drive standardization through payment reform and measures. And and CMS has done a tremendous job at helping improving the overall quality of care delivered by making sure we have the right core measures in place. But I think one of the pieces that's missing is really the leadership support at the ground level. We need to make sure that as these new regulations, policies, and legislative issues come up, that we're also pushing the resources downstream to empower these individuals, whether they're environmental services, nursing, SPD, it doesn't matter to do the job effectively. They all want to do the job. They just need the time, the resources, and the, the training in order to do so correctly. Well, thank you so much, Doctor, for sharing that information with us. And we want to um, thank you for being here today. And we're going to take a brief message, a um, brief commercial break. And when we return, we will continue learning more about bridging collaboration between patients and healthcare providers to reduce hospital-acquired infections. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. To help support the CDF Foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate, or call toll-free 1-844-4-CDIF. That's 1-844-367-2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products, EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes, trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. 
It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean, dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. diff, spores, and more, Global Broadcasting Network. We welcome our listeners joining us today, and it's a pleasure to reintroduce our guest, Dr. Hudson Garrett, Global Chief Clinical Officer for Pentex Medical Hoya Corporation and Chairperson of the Clinical Education Committee for the C. diff Foundation, here to discuss bridging collaboration between patients and healthcare providers to reduce hospital-acquired infections, healthcare acquired infections. And welcome back to the program, Dr. Garrett. Thank you very much, Nancy. You're welcome. And doctor, can you explain to our listeners what future challenges do you see associated with medical devices? Uh, Yeah, I think that really goes back to complexity of these devices. You know, we think about the acuity of patients that we are responsible for taking care of, and it continues to go up. We see more and more sick patients with complex comorbidities. Uh, That being said, that requires, you know, advanced interventions and therapies. And so we see the uh, medical device community um, coming out with more and more invention. The innovation is just astounding that we see out there, which saves lives. That being said, it does require a higher level of caliber of people reprocessing these devices and also looking out for what's that risk-benefit analysis. You know, is the risk to the patient greater than the benefit? And obviously, we want the benefit to be uh, far outweighing the risk. So when we look at medical devices, that's really where not only the FDA comes in, but also CDC to really look at best practices with developing these tools, but also using them in the clinical context and the clinical care setting. Okay, doctor. And doctor, there are always new things being discovered, researched, and developed. Um, What do you see developing on the horizon that we should keep an eye on? Well, I think you're going to see more of an emphasis in changes in how we reprocess instrumentation. You might, for example, see a move from high-level disinfection to sterilization. We've already seen some disposable products that come out. Um, I do want to mention one thing that I think is really important uh, for disposable products, and I'll use the blood pressure cuff as an example. Uh, We have seen a large proportion, especially in the intensive care setting of acute care hospitals, of disposable blood pressures being introduced. And while the general concept makes sense, you know, we're going to use this one blood pressure cuff for this exact one patient, the risk for transmission should theoretically be much lower. But guess where we store the blood pressure cuff all too often? We actually wrap it around the bed rail of the patient's bed. Well, as we have mentioned in previous segments, this area is what we consider high-touch surface. It's one that is easily and commonly contaminated with bioburden and soil. Um, you know, think about a C. diff patient that just comes from the bathroom and they have spores on their hands and they touch that bed rail. And then that bed rail, you know, serves as that not only reservoir for bacterial growth of the, the C. diff spore, but also as a vector for transmission. And so disposable is not always better is the reason that, um, I, you know, I think it's important for us to, to 
focus on that. Uh, disposable can be better. It can also be more costly. And so we want to look at that risk-benefit analysis. So I, I think you're going to see that as a future innovation. And last but not least, I think you'll see more complex medical devices, but with less, um, I would say, complex instructions for use as far as how to reprocess those. So it's great to in- increase the complexity and the capability of device, but at the same time, we want to find a way to reduce the complexity of how we actually reprocess that device and put it back into service. Okay, and a lot of great key points there. And Doctor, what is the most important thing that a patient can do to reduce the risk of acquiring an infection? You know, that's that's a tough question to narrow down to one thing. And as much as I hate to say this, you know, really... Um, honestly, I think is to stay out of a hospital. Um, we know that hospitals are really vectors for transmission, and it's just because of the nature of the beast. We have lots of sick people there. Um, you know, if we can seek outpatient care, it certainly helps both from a convenience and a risk standpoint. But outpatient doesn't mean no risk. Um, when we look at ambulatory surgery centers as an example, one of their measures is really throughput. They want to see how many patients they can actually get in and out. And so we see this across healthcare. So you can never compromise safety. Um, I think about a valuable lesson that um, some of my colleagues at AHE have taught me about, you know, really the time that it takes to turn those rooms. And I think about the wonderful example set by their organization's president, Gary Dolan, who happens to work in a post-acute care setting. And, and I, I know for a fact that he really advocates strongly for his patients because they're not just patients to him. They are people. They're people that he's really charged with the responsibility for caring for. These are individuals that in some cases are very vulnerable and, and really um, susceptible to infections. And so we need to look carefully at how we use the word time. Uh, time can never be a compromise for safety. And so if it really takes 30 minutes to turn that room over or turn that OR suite over or 45 minutes to reprocess that instrument, we need to make sure we strictly adhere to that. There is nothing that should surpass that. No, no financial measure, no throughput measure, no leadership um, ultimatum that should really trump that because safety is the most important thing that we do. And I wish we had more individuals out there with the level of integrity that this particular person does as a leader of the environmental services space. Um, I constantly hear uh, the struggle of we don't have enough time or we're told that we only get 10 minutes to turn this room. And that's simply not something that we can accept as a healthcare team, but more importantly, as a patient. No, I agree with you 100% there, doctor. And doctor, you, maybe you can explain what the role of healthcare leaders uh, it is in supporting evidence-based practices for reducing healthcare-associated infections. Sure. So healthcare-associated infection prevention really stops at the administrative level. It really stops at that CEO or that chief executive officer. That's the person that is ultimately responsible for the resourcing of the infection prevention and control program. And while some facilities are fortunate enough to have a dedicated infection preventionist, many are not, especially in post-acute care. That person may wear multiple different hats. Maybe they're in charge of employee health or nursing education, um, and they have you know very, very limited resources. But executive leaders, regardless of the setting, have the ultimate responsibility ethically and professionally to resource the entire infection prevention and control program. And again, we base that program on the results of our annual risk assessment to really look at the common themes that we see, the types of patients we serve, as well as the different procedures we perform and our antibiotic resistance patterns. And healthcare leaders need to be exposed to all of that. It's also important that environmental services, infection prevention, and nursing also be represented in the boardroom. Having that seat at the C-suite table can help us drive clinical practice, drive standardization, reduce costs, and improve overall patient quality and healthcare safety. Thank you so much, Doctor, for sharing that information. And 
maybe you can shine some light on this. We know that patients are scared. They're scared of getting infections when receiving routine medical care. Can you explain and share some information with the, our global listeners on how to, you know, how to reduce the anxiety associated with this? You know, no doubt. And I, I, I get scared when I go in to have a procedure as well. So I think it, it leaves even worse for healthcare providers. Um, the way that I personally deal with it is I become more educated. I ask better questions. I ask the people that are going to be responsible for caring for me, what is their plan? How are they going to reduce risk? What are they going to do if certain things happen? And I think that what we need to do as a consumer of healthcare, all of us are, is to translate that, that fear or that anxiety into action. Ask questions. Know what you're getting into. Research the facility. Um, you know, meet your environmental services professionals that are really responsible for that clinical environment of care. And if you feel at all uncomfortable, cancel the procedure. You know, reschedule it and make sure that you're totally comfortable and all your questions have been answered. Um, fear is, is an invaluable emotion when we don't translate it into action. And so I think that's what we really need to move towards. Well, thank you so much, Doctor, for that. And before we close the program, Dr. Garrett, do you have any closing comments that you'd like to share with our global listeners at this time? Well, for, first of all, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today. And I think when we look at what happens in the news, like the, you know, the unfortunate incident in Nevada where the woman with the superbug it was, you know, claimed her life, we will continue to see these, these challenges. We'll continue to see um, huge uh, increases in antibiotic resistance. We'll continue to see decreasing um, uh, staff you know, uh, ratios if we don't stand up and actually demonstrate evidence-based practice. Sometimes evidence-based practice is simply common sense. Um, I don't really need a paper to tell me why to wash my hands. I, I know why I need to wash my hands. The clinical environment of care is now scientifically validated to serve as a reservoir and, as I mentioned before, a vector for transmission. And so we're going to continue to see these evolutions in healthcare along with innovation coming from industry. And so I think it's important that we look at how are we going to integrate these things for better, higher quality patient care, reducing qual- uh, cost, and really improving overall quality. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Garrett, for joining us today on CDIP Spores and More Global Broadcasting Network. We've learned a great deal from today's discussion with you, and we look forward to having you join us again in the near future. This is your host, Nancy Corrala, with a reminder that none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health and a good day. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.